Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to today's episode of the John Papaloni Show. Today, I have Chris Miles, who is the cash flow expert and the anti-financial advisor. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on here, John. Absolute pleasure. I like to start off my episodes with a uh, brief bio of who you are, what you do, and how you got there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, anti-financial advisor, it kind of, you know, says what it is, right? Like I'm against financial, traditional financial advice, mutual funds and that kind of thing. I'm very pro real estate and alternative investments because that's how I became financially free. Um, give you a little background. I actually didn't start that way. Um, I wasn't taught about money as a kid growing up. The only thing I was taught is to save a lot of it, save it forever and, uh, and try to be debt free, right? That was kind of what my dad had done. And uh, anyways, I mean, long story short, inspired me to become a business owner myself as I went out into the world and uh, the first business that I came across was becoming a financial advisor because I thought, hey, if I can learn about money and if it can even give my dad freedom, who was, you know, the kind of dad that always said, we can't afford it. What do you think? Money grows on trees. You know, we're not, I'm not made of money. You know, those kind of things always came up. So I wanted to do something different. Well, a few years in, my dad asked me for financial advice. And so I sat down with him as, as his financial advisor. He said, Chris, I'm 61 years old. Y2K was not my friend to my portfolio and my 401k, I want to know, can I retire? I looked at his portfolio and all of his assets and I said, dad, uh, if I'm to be honest, you better hope that you die in five years because without social security, you would run out of money that fast. Now understand he'd done everything right. He had you know, packed his 401k, got the match and everything right. He paid off his house early. He was so proud of it, he was debt free. Yet even him, even he could not retire financially free. And I started to realize as I looked at other clients, especially when I talked to guys that were real estate investors, they'd say, well, how many of your clients are actually financially free where they don't worry about money? And even the retired ones, I knew they were still worried about running out of money too soon or living too long. And then he said, here's the big thing. One of my friends said, he said, Chris, how many of your, uh, how many of you guys as financial advisors are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning, but actually doing these mutual fund investments. And that was like the nail in the coffin for me because I started thinking, uh, I started looking around the office and I saw guys have been working there since the late 1970s and yet none of them were financially free. And that's when I realized, okay, there's a problem here. I can either put blinders on, like I know many, some of my friends do that are still in that space. They put blinders on and say, well, it's good for somebody. It's better than nothing. I'll just keep teaching it like, you know, I'll sell the dream. But me, I couldn't do that. So I actually quit. I vowed never, never, never I vowed never to be teach about money again. I was done. Uh, eventually, of course, people kept asking me, you know, after I became financially independent myself, especially with, like with real estate investing and business and things like that, they said, how'd you do it? That's where I started coaching people on how to do that. And so that's why I'm the anti-financial advisor. I'm trying to get people away from doing the same old pack your 401ks and IRAs and, you know, put it, you know, pay off your debt. And then somehow you're going to magically be financially free when the evidence and the proof is shown that's never been the case. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how you just said that. Like it's, I'm blown away, right? I'm blown away because your thoughts are pretty much the same as mine. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that, like you said, so many people are there for the commissions. And I've had so many people tell me, oh, you should invest in this, get a financial planner for that. And everyone that tried to pitch me, I said, show me your portfolio and I will match what you do. Mm -hmm. And that's usually where, you, you know, you lose them. It's so true. if you don't believe in your own product, why would I buy from you? Yeah. You it's, know, like, it's really that is, I, I was just... I was just at a study group recently with a bunch of high level financial advisors, some of them making multiple millions, multi-million dollars a year in their industry. Yet there's every single time, every time I go to this thing is once a year, there's always someone who pulls me aside and says, Hey, Chris, can you, can you teach me how to be financially independent? Cause I'm not there. You know, like I'm making lots of money in my business, but I don't know how to be able to, to be financially independent, retire. And 
And how in the heck do you pull off just wearing, you know, shorts and a t-shirt here at this? Like I wear suits and ties all the time because I'm from New York. Right. And, <laughs> and it's like, Hey, you know, join, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take the, you gotta take the pill, man. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta join the, you gotta come over to the, away from the dark side, you know, but that's the thing is like those guys, I mean, even them, they make good money. That's the thing. Their business is the model that makes the money, not the investments. And if you start to separate the financial advisor business from the investments, you start to realize you pull back the curtain a little bit. They're not financially free either. They, they don't have the ability to just say I can quit, right? They're kind of like the real estate investor. That's a wholesaler making mm -hmm. multiple millions of dollars a year. Yet they don't have a portfolio or anything to say, I can, I can slow down. I can stop your know, wholesale also becomes illegal in my state. I'm okay. That just doesn't happen. So it's, it's really getting you to that place where you work because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you that even with the wholesaler part there, there's so like, look, there's so many people that try the wholesaling part and they actually lose money instead of making yeah. money. Right. Like it's, everyone thinks I've watched HGTV. I see mm -hmm. Tarek Almosa. He's uh, flipping properties. I can do that. Well, you know what? Ask if you can reach him, call him and ask him how many times he failed before he was successful. And nobody asks right. that. They all look at the, you know, the uh, fantastic journey on HGTV and think they can replicate it because it's that easy. Yeah. And, and, it's and it's false. And then what happens is you do one, you make a little money. Oh, you know, they plan, oh, I'm going to make a hundred grand. Then they make 20 grand. It's like, oh, well, I learned. So on the next one, I'm going to make the hundred. They do the next one. The next one, they make 25 grand. Now they're very happy. Then they do a third one and they say, okay, I'm thinking too small. Let me get my third one. They get into the third one and the third one, they go over and above. Now they lost a hundred thousand. And now, mm -hmm. now they're saying, oh, this is bullshit. And they go and do something else. The That's problem right. wasn't what you're doing as much as how you're doing it. That's right. It's true. It's it, well, like, you know, talking about wholesalers and flippers in the real estate space, right? Like 2022 was a brutal year. I watched several friends get to the point where either they at the point of saying, I should just shut this thing down. I'm done. <laughs> or uh, how am I going to pull out of this and just barely make it to 2023 with ma massive bumps and bruises and scrapes and blood coming out of them and everything. Right. It was just a brutal year. And, and the thing is, I don't think it was even that brutal compared to what I've seen in the past. You know, I, I remember going through the last great recession and that was, that was brutal because I was trying to, I was, I was thinking the best way to make money in real estate was just to flip, right. Just to, buy a property, you buy it with lots of equity. And of course, with appreciation, you'll be able to sell it and everybody can make money. And then 2007 hit and the banks start freezing up that summer and everything just got ran dry, you know? And, and so where I was trying to gamble on really making money off appreciation, it was the opposite effect, end up depreciating instead. And we kind of seen that happen. Uh, even though we've seen things stabilize a little bit here in, in the early 2023, it's it's it was a rough brutal year for those in 2022 because they might have shown up in the game at 2018 when you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to make money yeah any idiot really could make money in real estate for the last several years it takes somebody with that kind of wisdom and preparation and knowing how to keep that dry powder keeping those cash reserves in place and and being profitable and building up that portfolio that allowed them to actually weather that storm and keep their business going there you go. You touched on another point here. And, and this is what I'm going to say. Do you know who has not? Look, we had a few good years, like you said. We had some bad years, whatever. Look at 2022 with the new interest rates. And look at what happened and how the market slowed down. Do you want to know who didn't lose money in that last year? The people that did not sell. The people who bought the property 
with money they can actually afford, not over leverage themselves. You know, you have people saying, I got four or five properties. That's wonderful. But what happens when you have four or five tenants that do not pay you rent? Can you make those mortgage payments? Or are you selling everything at a discount? You're better yeah. off to have one or two properties that should you have a five month gap is not detrimental to you. And at the same time, I always tell people buy a rental property that when you can put the amount of money uh, as a down payment that you need and still have six to 12 months of reserve fund should an emergency occur. When you have that, then you can afford that property. And until you have that, hold your horses. That's my advice. That's great advice. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, that's the thing is that sometimes it takes getting kicked in the teeth to really, you know, wise up and know how to protect your teeth, right? The yeah. next time. And, and that's, and that's true. Like there's, there's so many things that went wrong. And I remember like, I'm in a mastermind group with a lot of guys that are wholesalers and, and flippers. And, and I'm actually not a wholesaler or flipper anymore. I, I just completely do passive investing myself. I invest if I, you know, I might buy long-term rentals and things like that, like as turnkey properties, but I don't personally manage them. I'm like hands off now. And I love it that way. But for those guys that are active and we talk about our mastermind groups, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it, we, we have been prepping them for years. I mean, I remember at the end of 2019, we're saying the recession's about to hit, get ready. And then all of a sudden with COVID, the opposite happened, right? Because they start pumping tons and tons of money and, you know, trillions of dollars into the market. And so then everything overinflated. So the bubble just got bigger that we knew was already starting to collapse in 2019. And, uh, and we kept warning people like, hey, you've got to have you know, liquid cash, liquid reserves. You got to make sure your cash flows are tight. It's not about quantity. It's about quality of deals, right? It's, it's about really tightening things up, you know, trimming the fat, you know, make sure that you're a very profitable business going in because this is going to come to an end and it's going to hurt. And the bigger the bubble, you know, it's kind of like the bigger the party, the bigger the hangover, right? And we saw that happen. And, uh, and that's, and that the people that were prepared for that through and said, Ooh, that was, you were right. That was rough but I'm okay. Right. I've got enough cash reserves to keep the company going. I'm fine. Um, even in my case, I mean, where I have long-term rentals, yeah, there's, there's some little bit of hiccups here or there, mostly with property managers, if anything, but, yeah. uh, renters, I mean, even if there was a situation with that, like still we're able to, if you have a good property manager in place, things can, you can evolve and things work. And so, yeah, you might be negative cash flow. And I actually was looking at selling two of our rentals out in Alabama, for example, because that state kind of got, hurt pretty badly, especially in the last year. And then when we looked, went to look at the numbers and everything, and as rent started to come back in again, we realized no, our cash and cash is still really strong. You know, like if we had a our return on equity was still about nine or 10%, which is just not a good enough reason to sell at this point. So, um, you know, that's the thing is like, you know, you have to, you know, be able to weather the storms, have good enough cash reserves so that you don't make a rash emotional decision that could really cost you the most money. And that, there you go. Rash emotional decisions. Investing should not be emotional. It should be logical. It should be something thought out, well thought out and planned. And you have to be able to look at it from a logical point and, and be able to realize when it's time to sell and not to sell. Because you're worried is not the reason to sell. The reason to sell is because you see your cash flow diminishing. And it's below a certain point. If your cash flow is diminished to 2%, sell the damn thing. If you're still making 8% or more, then count your lucky stars and found, find a way to make more somehow, mm -hmm. right? And that's the way I look at it. And you said the key word here, cash flow. And cash flow is, to me, is one of the most important things out there. 
I don't invest for appreciation. Although yeah. that is one of the benefits that come with investing, but I invest for cash flow because like I said, there will be drought sometimes, but income is always important. And, and the thing is you can even handle debt. Not that I recommend debt, but you can handle debt when you have the cash flow to continuously pay it. When you're doing for appreciation, the burden of that mortgage or anything that comes up lies on you. When you have cash flow, the worst case scenario is you're breaking even because the cash flow paid the problem. You don't have a problem per se if you have money. You have a problem when you don't have the money. And that comes back to cash flow. So I agree with that 100%. And that's the thing. I Again, I love the fact that you brought out the property manager, right? Because everybody says, I'm going to invest in real estate because it's passive. Well, ask a true landlord that manages it himself and ask him how passive that is, right? Definitely so, not. you know, when you have one rental property, there's not enough for a manager. And if there's not enough, then it ain't. it's not passive whatsoever. So, I mean, kudos to you for to realize that. And people should realize real estate is a buy and hold strategy if you want long-term wealth. And it's one of those things that, yeah, a lot of complaints I hear, oh, but I'm only going to cash flow $100, $200 a month. Yeah. You're getting an extra one or $200 a month above appreciation and somebody else is paying that mortgage, not you. Mm-hmm. Versus putting the money in the bank, having inflation eat it and earning zilch. Are you ahead or are you behind? And then people just kind of get stuck. But, and that's the thing, right? So I find mm-hmm. the people who really benefit out there are the ones that see past the short-term pain and can envision things long-term. Look, let's look yeah. at another point, right? I mean, I don't know if you how often you sell or if you sell anything, but if you keep something and you pay off that mortgage, eventually that $200 cash flow becomes $2,200 cash flow, assuming the rent is $2,200 or $2,400, right? It's a time game, buy and wait. So with that being said, I mean, that's a strategy, and I think anybody can figure that part out. My question to you is, how did you discover that real estate was the way for you? Like, what was the uh, moment, and how did you build and scale? You know, I think it was... Well, really, it was when I quit being a financial advisor, right? I mean, you mentioned talking about cash flow, which is, it is so important. I mean, even my shirt says, you know, cash flow equals freedom, you know? It's uh, it's true. Like, cash flow gives you options, and when you have more options, you have more freedom, right? And for me, see, as a financial advisor, you're taught the accumulation mindset, right? You're taught to build up and store all this money and then live on less than the interest. And people used to say 4%, like the whole 4% rule, that's BS. Uh, we were questioning that even 20 years ago. And now we've even got companies coming out saying, researchers saying, nope, 4% is too high. It should only be 3%. So think about it. Even if you're one of the very, very few fortunate people that actually save up a million dollars in your IRAs or 401ks, um, just did a, just did the recent numbers. Fidelity just announced that they have declining amount of millionaires with their 401ks out of their uh, I don't know. It's like over a hundred million. I think 401ks that they have, there's only 299,000 people that have a bigger balance than a million dollars in there. 299,000 people. That's it. That includes all these baby boomers, which already know there's like 80 million baby boomers out there. 76 million to be exact, give or take, you know, we've got so many millions of baby boomers that have been saving these plans forever yet only 299,000 have a million bucks. 
I used to teach as a financial advisor back in the day that if you save hundred dollars a month for 40 years at 12% interest, you'll have a million bucks. The truth is that's not the case. The stock market has not returned that at all. And to your point with putting your money like in the bank for inflation, this is what I realized is, um, is that what's the real return of the market? Uh, the SP 500, for example, the last 30 years has only averaged an actual real rate of return of 7.6%, not 10, not 12, 7.6. That's, that's not even including any fees are taken out. For Fidelity, it's even less. Give you an example. Last 10 years, I was going through Fidelity because they're obviously the big 800 pound gorilla, right? I'm going through their numbers, uh, their, their different investment accounts. The retirement accounts, it shows the last 10 years for like the target date retirement, 2035, 2040, 2050, those kind of things, right? Um, those kind of targeted funds that are supposed to help get to retirement that most people put their money into. 70% of people put their money in those, especially millennials. Well, the average was about 8%. However, the average over that same 10-year 10, 10 period of time for the SP, the actual real yield was over 10, was 10.1. So that means it underperformed by 2%. And they also have a three-quarter percent fee coming out. So really, you only saw about a seven and a quarter percent return when the market was doing 10.1. Well, if the market only averages 2.5% less than that, well, now let's take 2.5% away, you're looking at just over a 5% rate of return in a normal market. That's just not enough. This is why, like my dad, uh, to use his example, you know, Y2K kicked his butt because there's the tech bubble and that burst. So, you know, we saw the SP 500, it was about 1500 that time. It came crashing down, started to come back up. It just got right back up to where it was at the height in 2007 and then crash again. It finally took until about 2013 before the SP 500 got to where it was 13 years prior in 2000. But the problem is because fees were coming out, most people I was talking to at that time, the reality, not what, again, what people are theoretically saying the returns are, the reality was most of those clients that just had money sitting there, not doing anything to it, not adding money into it, they didn't see it come back to even until about 2015 when the market had finally returned another 30% higher. So, but it, then people say, oh, now I finally got my money back. It took 15 years. No, you didn't because inflation took over half that away. So you're still down like 50% because of inflation. And again, as a financial advisor, I was seeing this stuff. I hadn't seen this yet, right? Because it's 2006 when I left being a financial advisor. But when I started to realize that things were based on hypotheticals and, and theory versus a cash flow passive income focus, that's what we take more as investors. We don't care about what the actual amount of money is. We care about what that money is actually doing for us. What kind of income does it generate for us? And so a good example, one of, our, one of my clients, uh, he... He actually is out in California, had a million dollars saved up in his retirement plan. Uh, he was one of the top ranking colonels in the California National Guard. Well, when he retired, I and mean, he did great market timing. He got out of the market before Y2K. He got out of the market before the Great Recession. He just had, if it weren't for that, he probably wouldn't have had a million bucks. But then when he talked to his financial advisor, his financial advisor said, well, you have a million dollars, live on 3%. You can live on $30,000 a year. I mean, imagine that. You're a millionaire. And you're told to live below the poverty line, 30,000 a year. And that's before taxes are taken out. Well, and that's what makes it ridiculous. It is. It's completely ridiculous. It, you work so hard to make so little. In fact, I've told people when you really factor the numbers of the real return of the market, you, whatever you save per year in your 401k after inflation is exactly what you'll live on in retirement after 30 or 40 years. So if you're saving up 20,000 a year, max funding your 401k, you will be able to pull out 
about 20,000 a year equivalent with inflation and lifestyle. And so this guy, instead, he said, I, I, screw that. <laughs> I'm, gonna get out the, I'm not going to do this in the market. How can I do it better? As we started working with him one-on-one, -on -one, we're not investment advisors, but we are strategists and consultants, and we help connect them to deals. And so we said, hey, based on your situation, you get this money out. Here's ways you can do it to reduce some taxes. Here's a way you can self-direct your IRA or you know whatnot. Well, he went into different investments, everything from you know owning real estate, like turnkey properties, to multifamily, and even with uh, oil and gas, mineral rights, where he gets paid on the land and the drilling too. Interesting. And, uh, and now in total, he has about 11000 a month coming in. Not 30000 a year, but about 130000 a year coming in from his deals. That's incredible. Wow. That's the difference. Yeah. And 11000 is nothing to sneeze at, even after taxes. Definitely not. That's what so, woke me up. I mean, when I, as a financial, when I was a financial advisor and I started to see that, I'm like, wait a minute, I can do this. I can even short-term lend my money to other investors, let them pay me hard, on hard money loans, and I can make you know, 1%, 2% a month, possibly. I mean, that's 2% is pretty high nowadays, but mm -hmm. you know, pre 2007, there's people paying like two, 3% a month for hard money. You know, like it was incredible. You know, and, and when I started to do the numbers, I said, oh my goodness, now a guy like my dad could have hope, right? Now somebody, you know, in a situation where they didn't have any hope for retirement now have hope. And that's what I'm seeing today is that there's so many people out there that say, Chris, I mean, I, I've, I was kind of ignoring it, thinking I was okay. I was in la la land because my financial advisor says, just keep going, keep saving. And then they hit their you know, 40s and 50s. And they say, hold on a minute. At this trajectory, I'm never going to be able to retire. I'm going to have to go into my 70s. And, and a lot of times they talk to us and then we would look at their situation with these different set of eyes of, look, like based on cash flow, a passive income you could generate of 10% plus a year look, we can actually get you to the point where in the next five or 10 years, you could be financially independent. You're now work optional. You work because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah, exactly. Now, what do you say to those people who are sitting around waiting for the government to take care of them? <laughs> well, I have to ask, when is the government really ever truly taking care of us? Right? I mean, I, I, and I get it. Like, of course, they provide a public duty. I have friends in government places too. It's, it's not that government is completely useless, you know, but when we try to come at it from a welfare state of mind, where we hope that somebody will swoop in and save us. I mean, this is why social security, I believe will never be voted out at least not anytime in the short term. Uh, even if it goes bankrupt, they will still find a way to pay for it. Right. Cause they, they, they literally baby boomers. And now even my generation, generation Xers, are going to be relying upon it because we've been told and sold a bill of goods. It's a bunch of crap that somehow we just keep saving our 401ks. We're going to have enough. And then we're going to realize, no, we can't. We need social security to keep, you know, bridge that gap of allowing us to at least live and not uh, be stuck at home, you know, on that front porch swing, not because you know, we think we're living free and happy. We're still on that front porch swing because we can't afford to pay for gas, right? That's the reality. So, so when people want to try to rely on the government, the government, it's just, it's like the house always wins. And unfortunately you're not the house, you know, the government is the house, you know, that even if you pay more in taxes, still, they will find a way to mismanage that money because they're just not wise stewards of the money we give them. I would much rather keep the money in our hands. Let us be the stewards of our, and our, of our, of our own destiny, right? Like if, if we screw up with our money, great. We screwed up. It's our fault, not the government's fault, right? Yep. If we make more, if we become multimillionaires, billionaires, whatever it might be with our money, great. 
we at least can take that personal accountability to do it. But unfortunately, we're having a generation rising up right now that feels like personal accountability is gone. It's out the window that somehow we got to hope and pray that the government will swoop in and save the day, that somehow government officials are more intelligent than we are, which has never been the case. They're, we just vote people out of the public, general public, to become politicians. And a lot of times we vote some pretty idiot, pretty big idiots there, right? There's no doubt. There are some people that have some crazy radical ideas or they're just pandering to what the masses want. It's, it's, it reminds me of sixth grade, of, of sixth grade, right? I remember yep. go, fifth grade going to sixth grade. We we're going to be the top of our class in that elementary school. And of course, you know, you get to vote for that class president. There was two guys running. One of them was my friend, Zach. The thing that set him apart is he says, I promise that instead of just white milk, we will have chocolate milk for lunch every day. And naturally he got all the votes. He uh -huh. had no control over chocolate milk, right? That was a school's decision, not a sixth grader. He can't make those decisions at all, but that making that little campaign promise got him voted in as sixth grade class president. Good job, Zach. You know, and that's, and that's what politicians are doing today. They sometimes make promises that they know they can't keep or they'll say things that they know are just stupid. But if the people believe it, great. And the, tr the truth is, is when have the masses really ever known what's right? You know, because with money, that's never been the case. If you ever want to know the best place to invest, just listen to what, where people say don't invest. <laughs> yeah. You know, like right now, like just this morning, we had the numbers coming out that uh, that GDP, right? Uh, yep, that yep. The GDP came out. So they're expecting one, a slowdown of to 1.9%. It went down to 1.1. It's worse than they thought. And still yet the stock market hasn't truly responded to that because they're hoping that the feds next week will say, all right, maybe we'll just not raise rates. No, they're still going to raise rates because inflation's still crazy out of control. This is a step in the right direction, but they want to they want to pretty much almost move it to deflation. They don't want to, but they're going to get it pretty dang close. And they might even overcorrect to where it could create deflation. That could affect real estate. It can affect a lot of things, uh, especially if you're trying to correct a bubble first. You know, it's the, when the bubble pops, it gets worse. You know, so you know we got all this stuff coming out that's happening right now. And you're going to hear people say, don't invest in real estate. You're going to see people sitting on the sidelines with money saying, I'm just going to wait until real estate comes back. Newsflash, mm -hmm. real estate's already been coming back. Prices have already been stabilizing around the country, even uh, other than some hot markets that should crash anyways, especially like in the Western half of the United States here. You know, those places, yeah, I don't buy properties there. I'm buying the places that didn't overinflate. I'm buying places like in the Southeast or the Midwest, places like that where there's better prices and again, I'm not banking on appreciation. I don't give a crap about it. That's bonus. I want the cash flow. Where's my profits? That's what's going to weather you through the storm, having a lot of cash on hand, having also money still investing in real estate. I mean, that's how Joseph Kennedy did it. John F. Kennedy's dad, right? Joseph Kennedy yeah, yeah. went from $4 million net worth in 1929 as a bootlegger, right? And then when prohibition ended there, that wasn't a good business, but he did and he went and bought a ton of commercial real estate in, the, in, the, in New York City. And as a result, he went from $4 million in 1929 to just six years later in 1935, $180 million, all from disinvesting in real estate when everybody, either one, thought that real estate was a bad deal, or two, they couldn't afford it because they didn't have the cash. This right now is your opportunity. I'm not saying you're going to create $180 million in six years. I'm not saying that right now. But I am saying that there's a great opportunity, and there are still deals right now if you're not looking for them or you just think I'm going to wait until the news tells me, which when the news tells you, it's already too late. You've missed the boat. But if you act now, things will actually improve. Things will actually 
go in your favor. You will, you'll be looked at just like people looked at people buying real estate in 2010, 2011 saying, Oh, I wish I were you. That was so smart. People are going to say the same thing about you in 2023 and 2024, but well, they will say that, but just you, if you actually invest, if you don't, sorry, you're going to be the person saying that to other people. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, exactly. Now, a lot of times uh, people go onto a podcast and listen to advice, then they start wondering, you know, where are the credentials? How do I have proof? Now, where I'm going with this is that I've read a little bit about on your profile that you started off with a million dollar debt and you got out of that. And to yeah. me, that story is the proof because if you can start off at negative one million and you can be where you are today, then that tells people that there's opportunity for everybody if you're willing to pay attention. It's true. I mean, that was my, that was my second journey towards financial independence because I became financially independent in 2006, you know, after I quit being a financial advisor, but then I got a little bit egotistical. I was 28 years old going on 29. You know, it's kind of like the ambition of your twenties catches up to you in your thirties. And uh, I was overly ambitious. I was young and dumb in a sense where I thought nothing could go wrong. You know, I even threw money into my house. You know, I, I did the whole Dave Ramsey thing, right? Where I went, started paying down the equity in, in, into my house thinking, well, if I ever need the equity as an investor, I can always just get a line of credit or I can just refinance my property because I was a mortgage broker at the time. So of course I could do that, right? I knew I could get my money whenever I needed it. But then when everything dried up and they did restrict credit and they said, no, we don't want to do cash out refinances anymore, that all of a sudden that equity trapped in my property was gone. Because eventually, because everything was locked up, there's no liquidity in the banking system. Then, of course, everything started to depreciate, including my house value. So all that equity I thought was just a, like a great place to store my money like a savings account was just a facade. It was actually fake because that money was then gone. All that money I threw in, that was real money I threw in to go put in equity that then disappeared. And I never got that money back. And uh, between that and everything else going on, and I launched a new business with some partners to teach people how to get out of the rat race during 2007, ironically enough. Um, the next thing I know, I'm over a million dollars in debt, right? I'm, uh, I'm going the whole sinking fast. I was in the hole about 15,000, 16,000 a month. That was short. And uh, I had to tighten up really fast. So I had to start tracking my money. You know, I, I recommend people do that. Always a step one is always track your money, even especially if you're in real estate, track your business, your business income, revenue, as well as your expenses, track it on your personal side as well. And just, be very diligent about that. Like really understand where the money's going, how the money's flowing in and flowing out. Um, once I started to do that, I got back under control. I started selling off assets um, and I, I was, literally had no money, no credit. I had to really just start from zero. I had creditors calling me multiple times a day. Um, I started calling them I love you calls because uh -huh. my friends stopped calling me. Once I, I didn't have money anymore and I was desperate, that's when the you, know, you started to see who your true friends were. So yeah. I, I started reframing those collector calls because they were the only friends calling me who were the, my collectors, right? They were saying, hey, can you pay for that Mercedes you just turned in? They auctioned off. I'm like, if I could have, I wouldn't have turned it in, you know? But uh, I was like, I'll pay you back. I just don't know when, you know, I, I would tell the creditors that all the time. And, and I would be like, hey, how's it going? Good to hear from you. They're like, you know, we're just calling a collected debt, right? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Okay, can you pay it? No, I can't. But don't worry, I will someday. And and eventually I did. You know, either I negotiated with them or you know, eventually found ways to pay it off. But eventually I had to get that cash flow under control and and then rebuild again. Um, it didn't file for bankruptcy, but I did have to dig out of that debt hole. And uh, that's why by the end of 2016, I was financially independent for the second time when I was 39 years old. So it can, it, it's 
it, if anything, it proved myself that what we teach works, right? Um, the great thing is, of course, it's not just me. We've had many, many other people do the same thing without having to go a million dollars in debt. Um, much easier when you don't start from that, that negative standpoint. But uh, I'm telling you, like, I could not have done that in the, in the stock market with mutual funds. There's no way that would have happened. There's no way I could have done that had it not been for business and real estate. You know, those two things hand in hand worked fantastic to help dig myself out of that hole and eventually get to where I'm again, work optional and teaching this because I want other people to be financially free. Yes. And see, there you go. And you covered two points here that I believe in. I believe work on your bills during the day and invest in your wealth at night. And what I mean by that is that you have your daytime, whether it's your business or your job. I'm not telling everybody, go quit your uh, cushy job that pays you your 60 grand a year or 70 grand a year or whatever. I'm not telling people to do that. Now, you could if you want, but that's not what I'm saying. Or, you know, whether it's a business or work, take that money. Instead of buying foolish crap like leases on cars, um, these days they even finance the fucking iPhone. Right. Like you can go there and you pay it and they have a take back option. So you use it for two years and then you send it back and you get your new one for as low as twenty nine ninety five a month. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyway, you look at it. That's a fucking lease. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't lease your phones. Don't buy these over expensive crap. Don't lease your cars. You know, live below your means. And then when you take that money and you invest it. Now you spend your time on your investments, whether it's looking at housing, whether you can do a joint venture. You don't have to buy it by yourself. Join with somebody. You can get into a real estate REIT. You know what I mean? And a REIT will pay you 6 to 8%. I mean, Jesus, if you want to invest with somebody, invest with me. I'll give you 6 to 9% a year, right? And you yeah. don't have to do any of the work. So there's options out there. Take your money and invest it. The invested money will turn to wealth. Your earned money will pay your bills. And that and that's that's the way I look at life and the way I look at things. And again, that's one perspective. I'm sure there's many ways to skin a cat for lack of a better description. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and again, you know what I mean? You can like, it's somebody wants to do it. They can, if they're disciplined, that's what it comes down to. How much do you really want it? So, and you proved it. You got out of a million dollar debt, took time and you, you know, you found a way to uh, turn it into something positive. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's I'm grateful for those experiences. I never want to go through that again, right? But definitely I'm I'm grateful for those experiences that I've been taught because it got me really put in perspective what's important, right? And and even just like what works, you know, like there's there's so many times that people get caught up that the they think that strategies are principles, right? And like yeah. what you just talked about was a very true principle about living within your means. You know, whether that means expanding your means, increasing your income so that you also can make the means work as well as trying to get, you know, trim the fat, right? Get lean. You, know, you don't have to live on rice and beans like our good old friend Dave Ramsey says. I, I think that's a little bit more too much in scarcity, but you can be a wise steward of your money. And so living within your means, that stewardship is a true principle. Now, when someone like, let's just say Dave Ramsey, for example, says, oh no, the principle is pay off your debt. No, that's a strategy. That's a, purely a strategy. It could, it could be a great strategy, right? But different times and different seasons, different circumstances and different, really even just different economies might prove that that strategy won't always work. You know, um, I know of one company that, uh, it, I wouldn't say their competitor, a colleague of ours, right. But they try to tell people they can help them 
create their plan towards financial independence, you know, if you hire their coaches. But the thing <laughs> is, they were banking on purely a home equity line of credit strategy on their velocity banking type strategy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had warned them for years. I said, guys, like, uh, like I love your, I love the way you think. I love how you think about cash flow and profit. But just so you know, that's not always going to work because if rates rise too high versus what the returns are, that could kill your cash flow. Or even worse, what if the, it, what if the banks say, we're going to stop lending, which I think is the next step, by the way, or not, they won't stop lending, but they're going to start restricting lending. So, yeah. you know, say you have that home equity line of credit, that's $200,000 and you use that strategy. You're like, I'm taking all my cash flow. I'm paying that line of credit down. I'm getting it down to about 50,000. I'll charge up again. Well, let's say you get down to 50,000. You're about to charge up again. The banks without warning say, we're going to cut your line of credit back down to 50,000. Now all that 150,000 you just threw in there is gone. It's just like what happened to me in the last recession, right? Got trapped in home equity. You can't access it. It's out of your, your control. Now that money's not being invested. You would you have been much better me? having that money outside of that bank's control in your own possession and investing it outward. So that's the thing. You got to know the difference between strategies and principles and that strategies don't always work. Yeah. You know what amazes me about that? is that people look at the credit they get from the bank as their own money. That's yeah. borrowed money. That isn't yours. That's Your right. money is something you could spend and don't have to answer to anyone or pay it back if you don't want to. Not no, money you, you took from somebody else. Car keys, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Like it's, it's incredible. And the thing is there's so many people out there that I told when times get tough, they might lower your credit. Oh, they can't do that. Yes, they can. Mm -hmm. It's not, you sign the damn document that says in the fine print that they can. Credit worthiness is based on what they feel that you can afford at that moment. And when times get tough, they may not feel that you can afford that anymore and they will claw it back. That's right. So it's I personally witnessed it. That now had I not witnessed it, I probably said, Oh no, that doesn't happen. But I was there. I witnessed it. And it wasn't just me. I saw clients that went through the same thing. I remember one client had $84,000 line of credit. She had $41,000 balance. She was actually going to invest just a few thousand of it into something that she thought would be a great business venture for herself. And then all of a sudden she had a letter in the mail that said effective last week, we cut your line of credit from 84,000 down to 42,000. That did two things. One, she didn't have access to that money anymore, but two, according to her credit report, now it looks like she maxed out her line of credit, even though she yep. was below 50%. On the on the credit to uh, uh, the limit to a balance yeah, ratio, yeah. she now looked like she was maxing out. So her credit score then also dropped at the same time simultaneously because of that one move that the bank did without having to ask for her permission or giving her any advance warning. They just did it and then told her a week later. You right. got to for anybody. That. And for anybody listening or watching, if you go even a dollar more than seventy percent of your available credit, your score will drop. That's right. Ideally, you don't want to use more than 30% because if you use 30% or less, the score will go up. 30 to 70 is pretty neutral. 71%, you lost points. So yeah. even in this circumstance, like you said, where it wasn't her choice mm -hmm. because he hit, she hit 100% because of someone else's choice, her credit score dropped. And now right. that proves another point where you don't want to be reliant on somebody else for your own lifestyle. You want to figure out how to be self-sufficient and you better have a better, a, a pretty damn good plan in there, which going to your whole thing where you said with the Dave Ramsey thing about paying off debts, I've got something that's sort of in between 
Do I believe you should pay off your debts first? 1000%. But let me clarify. I don't mean your mortgage. I don't mean your investments. I'm talking about consumer debt. Like when you go out and buy cars and you're paying that monthly, or you go out and buy phones, like I said, or you go out and pay your vacation and you put it on your credit card, get rid of that shit. Because that's stuff that takes away. The debt that I'm fine with is stuff that brings you cash flow and appreciation, like investments. So yeah, that's a great point. to invest, pay off on depreciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Give you a good example. I had a, a client just asked last week. He said, Hey, I just realized I, I listened to your thing. Cause I talk about debt and ways to use it, and ways not to use it. Right. And he said, I just got the idea. Like I'm, I'm about to have to go get a new, you know, new Tesla. We're going to have to get a lease payment on it anyways. God help us. Um, what if I just, instead of taking the money from my current car and paying that off, what if I just finance it? And generally I'm okay with that, especially if it was like 5% rate. I'm like, that's a great rate. Um, for simple interest, by the way, on loans, you only have to earn about half the interest rate of compounding interest to match the interest that you pay. So if it's a 5% loan, you only have to earn 2.5% on the money you could pay in cash to do that. I said, that's good. But, and this is going to your point, right? I'm like, here's the problem though. If you want to try to take that money to invest it, and let's just say you only make 10% on that 60,000, that's 6,000 a year, but your payment's not you know, 6,000 a year or 500 bucks a month, is it? It's like, no, it's going to be over 1,000 a month. I said, aha, here's the problem. You're going to be negative cash flow on that. This is like why when people get 401k loans, they're like, well, you just borrow from your own account. Yeah, but they require you every paycheck to pay that back. And they make you pay it back aggressively. For every $50,000, you well, only you can only borrow 50,000 from a 401k. If you borrow 50,000 from a 401k, you're going to be paying a little over 900 bucks a month for that. Well, if you don't have an investment to make at least 900 bucks a month, you're going in the hole that's increasing your risk because now it's like your debt to income ratio is going up. That's what banks look at it for financial health. What's the payment required compared to your income? Now, if your income is way skyrocketing beyond what you need, okay, cool. You could probably make that work and still make the numbers work in your favor long-term. But if you're paycheck to paycheck, don't you dare try to do that strategy and think that that's going to put you in a better position. You will be in bondage. You'll be in a worse cash flow position and that's not cool. Yeah, exactly. So I agree with you. Now I'm going to come down to a couple, two, three more questions before we wrap it up. And uh, one is, what would you advise somebody who's watched this uh, video and thought, you know what? I'm not doing things right. I want to change my life and I want to do things better. Say it's a working person who has, who's got a fixed salary, maybe a little bit of debt. Um, and they want to start making contributions or doing something towards their future, but they don't know where to begin. What would your advice be? Best advice is kind of the theme we've probably talked about a little bit is get your money out of prison. <laughs> and what I mean by that is pretty much do the opposite of what you've been told to do. Um, don't, you know, like, I don't think you should aggressively pay off, especially like you said, I mean, aggressively pay off your credit cards, right? But, you know, the consumer debt, but don't aggressively try to pay off a mortgage. Even in some cases, student loans, you may not want to aggressively pay those off either. Again, every bit of money, if you put it out of your possession into the bank's possession, you're just reducing the risk for banks while increasing your own personal risk. I think right now with the current market climate and everything going on, you need cash available. You need to be liquid. You need to have money. In the, even if you could pay off a debt, you might just hold on to cash for a little bit longer. Just make sure you have more than enough to pay off that debt. So keep cash on hand, right? Get your expenses under control and, uh, and really stop contributing to stump 401ks like the four I, i've had several clients just this week say 
you know what? I'm just realizing even with the match, that really doesn't do me much good. Having that money in my possession, I can then control and invest the way that I want to in real assets, not in arbitrary numbers, especially when you have banks failing and you've got, you know, you can't even tell if, if Amazon or Microsoft's going to go up or down because it just depends on what the interest rates do and all that kind of crap. Like there's so many things out of your control when you're putting your money in those places, keep it in your control, in your possession, and then educate the heck out of yourself, right? Like find ways to educate yourself to learn about this. Um, that's why you're watching this podcast, right? You know, I invite you to come see our podcast, the money ripples podcast we have on YouTube or iTunes as well. But I mean, get yourself educated. And then when you're at the point, you say, you know what, I've got a significant amount of cash. I want to do something with it. Then find ways to take action on it, but educate yourself, build education, store that as equity in your mind versus storing equity and just throwing your money at banks. And then the money's out of your possession. I, I think the people that will win in this recession that we are in right now, despite what the media and the <laughs> politicians tell you, I think the biggest people that will win right now are the people that have cash. Because for the last couple of years, they said, get rid of cash. Don't keep it in banks. It will die to inflation. Everybody's got their money out. And then they're going to put in places like Bitcoin or crappy stocks that then tank and then they don't have cash. The person with cash will become king or queen right now. That's my advice. I agree with you on that. I mean, uh, hey, is it uh, Bitcoin or is it shitcoin? Um, <laughs> um, it depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but yeah, going to even with what you touched a point about the whole employer match, right? Now, for mm -hmm. anybody watching in Canada, the uh, 401k in a Roth is equivalent to our RRSPs and mutual funds. Right. Same concept, different names, slightly different, but the end goal is really Very the similar. same. So with that being said, like sometimes employers match, like if it's 3% match, you put in 3% and the employers will match that 3%. Now, so many people, that's what I call the shiny object syndrome. And so many people are fooled by that. They think they're ahead by that 3%. And what you don't realize is that when you're, the market goes down, even the employer's contribution goes down with that, where that cash flow could have earned something that didn't go down. It would have had something more stable. Again, there's just not enough of a return for that 3% match to make an impact compared to other options. Now, yeah. it's like the stupid credit cards. People, oh, I get cash back, so let me get that one. No, you're going to spend it on consumer debt. If you have a credit card that you use, you don't need another 10 Right? Like who cares about the stupid points by the time you collect them, you spend thousands more than what you're collecting. You're not winning. Like how can people with a, you know, believe making a menial salary, believe that they can outwit a billion dollar company, right? It's just yep. unbelievable. It's mesmerized. Again, I'm not saying don't credit, get credit cards. I'm not going to be the Dave Ramsey way that way. Although I believe in a lot of his principles, I'm not going to be that same word. Don't get a credit card. No, you want a credit card, get a credit card, but you don't need a thousand of them and don't get them based on points. Get what you need and just go with that. So with that being said, next second last question is, how do you know you've had a successful day? I have a successful day when I know that I've made a difference in somebody's life, right? I mean, sometimes it's hard to see because I'm sitting behind my computer in my home office, you know, and things like that. But I mean, ultimately, if I know that I'm adding value, I'm serving people or I'm solving problems in some way, shape or form, to me, that's a successful day. Love that. I've never heard anybody say when I make a billion dollars, then I'm successful. It's always <laughs> uh, something meaningful. 
Love that. Okay. Last question, but not least, where do people find you? Yeah, I mentioned the Money Ripples podcast. You can find on YouTube uh, as well as you know iTunes and everywhere else. Or you can just go to our website, moneyripples.com. Fantastic. This has been phenomenal. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show. It's been such an honor. I really appreciate it, John. Absolute pleasure. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below.